Good morning, everybody. Uh, if you are new here, my name is Alexander Hildebrand. I'm one of the pastors here at First Church. Uh, if you are able, would you please stand as we come to the word of the Lord. Today we will be reading Joel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. And it says this, The Lord gave this message to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you leaders of the people. Listen, all who live in the land. In all your history, has anything like this ever happened before? Tell your children about it in the years to come, and let your children tell their children. Pass this story down from generation to generation. After the cutting locusts finished eating the crops, the swarming locusts took what was left. And after them came the hopping locusts and the stripping locusts too. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you wine drinkers. All the grapes are ruined, and all your sweet wine is gone. A vast army of locusts has invaded my land, and a terrible army, too numerous to count. Its teeth are like lion's teeth, its fangs like those of a lioness. It has destroyed my grapevines and ruined my fig trees, stripping their bark and destroying it, leaving the branches white and bare. Weep like a bride dressed in black, mourning the death of her husband. For there is no grain, there is no wine to offer at the temple of the Lord. So the priests are in mourning, the ministers of the Lord are weeping, the fields are ruined, the land is stripped bare, the grain is destroyed, the grapes have shriveled, and the oil is gone. Despair all you farmers, wail all you vine growers, weep because the wheat and the barley, all the crops of the field are ruined. The grapevines have dried up and the fig trees have withered. The pomegranate trees, the palm trees, the apple trees, all the fruit trees, they've dried up, and the people's joy has dried up with them. Dress yourselves in burlap and weep, you priests. Wail, you who serve before the altar. Come spend the night in burlap, you ministers of my God, for there is no grain, there is no wine to offer at the temple of your God. So announce a time of fasting. Call the people together for a solemn meeting. Bring the leaders and all the people of the land into the temple of the Lord your God, and cry out to him there, for the day of the Lord is near, the day when destruction comes from the Almighty. How terrible that day will be. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. I really like um, to start off sermons with a question. I don't know, that's just how my, my brain thinks. And so the question I ended up coming up with today was... Um, is anyone in here really interested in bugs? Like, yes, I got a hand. Last service, uh, they shouted no. Like, it wasn't just like, oh, yeah, I'm interested. Like, people were so disgusted at the mere thought. There were like 30 people. I went, no. No, is there, no, do you, is there anyone who's like, I think bugs are really cool. I think they're interesting. At my house, um, I feel, I feel like my house has a lot of spiders, like more spiders than the typical house. I don't know what the average is of spiders per year in your house, but I feel like for mine it's a lot. And so I've made like a covenant with the spiders in my house and they can stay in the basement. Like I like spiders, I think spiders are cool. They eat bugs that I don't want in my house. So spiders, I'm cool with them. We could have 80 spiders in my house and I'd be fine with it as long as they stay in the basement. But the second they come upstairs, they die. And that's the deal that we've agreed upon. 
So every now and then, I, I'm serious, like if I see spiders in my basement, I don't kill them because we have a deal. But if they show up anywhere else, they die. And uh, every now and then a spider will, I don't know, will find one and I'll, I'll squish out and be like, dude, you betrayed our, my trust, right? <laughs> and I would tell the girls, because I have two little girls, and at first they would freak out if they saw a spider. They would lose their minds, be like, dad, kill it, kill it. And uh, I told them, I was like, yeah, I'm going to squish it because it broke our agreement, but really we should like spiders because they eat, you know, bugs we don't want. And just yesterday or two days ago, I don't remember, uh, a spider was in our kitchen. My wife, Emily, was like, Alex, kill it. And my daughter, Genevieve, was like, no, don't kill it. It eats bad bugs. We want to keep it. And I was like, kiddo, it, it broke our agreement. It's got to die. <laughs> I was like, we're not saving this one. It's not worth it. <laughs> um, when we open into Joel, the, the very first picture we get is this picture of bugs. Like, not a little bit, not even a, a moderate amount swarms and swarms and swarms of bugs. And not just any bugs, but locusts. Locusts that come and devour everything. Right? Joel is speaking to the people of Israel at a time in which they have endured like a, a very real and a very serious catastrophe where they've had these swarms of locusts come in and absolutely destroy their crops. And I think that's something that you and I we don't often think of the severity of that, but for these people, like, that was their food. That was their only source of food. And so Joel is speaking to a people who are at a time um, in their culture where they have lost all of their food, and that greatly impacts how they live, right? You now have, you, you have a people who used to be prospering, right? Everything was fine, and now you are fighting and scrounging and doing everything you can just to make sure that there is food for you and your family. Right, Joel is speaking to a people who have encountered this, this very great and this very difficult tragedy. And Joel comes out of the gate with, with a pretty bold claim. Because Joel looks at this tragedy and he doesn't view it as some random natural event. Joel looks at this plague of locusts. And he connects it to God. He doesn't just connect it to God. He says that this plague of locusts is the will of God. That God has brought it upon the Israelites. You see, as we continue to go through the book of the 12, what you're going to see over and over and over again is the prophets criticizing the people of Israel for how they have abandoned God and rejected God and turned away from him. Now, normally, most of these prophets, they come with a specific list, right? They say, because you've done X, Y, and Z, right? God's not happy. But Joel's pretty interesting because Joel doesn't actually give a list of sins. He doesn't give a specific list of grievances, which makes most people think that despite showing up, you know, second, Joel is actually one of the latest minor prophets in terms of when he actually, you know, wrote his book. But regardless of whether or not he gives a specific list of sins, it's very evident right out of the gate that Joel believes that the people of Israel have abandoned Yahweh. That this plague of locusts, it's not random. It's not just some natural occurrence. But it is God's judgment upon the people of Israel for how they have turned away 
from him. And Joel uses a very specific phrase to, to call these you know, tragic events. And it's a phrase that we're actually going to see over and over and over again as we go through the prophets. You might already be familiar with it because um, it also comes up in Revelation. But it's this phrase, the day of the Lord. See, Joel believes that his people Israel have experienced the day of the Lord. And he also believes that they're going to experience a future day of the Lord. But it's this phrase that, that repeats throughout the scriptures. And it means, or it refers to, kind of these big moments when God pronounces a judgment upon a particular people in this big, mighty, tragic way. If you were to read the Bible cover to cover, when you get to Joel, this shouldn't come as a surprise to you. Right? If you go through the whole Bible cover to cover, you're going to see that God is actually deeply concerned with human morality. That God is deeply concerned with human evil. And even though God is gracious and patient and slow to anger, God will not allow evil to continue forever. And there are times where God brings judgment upon human evil. Right? Think of Noah and the flood. And the flood wasn't just this random natural occurrence. The Bible depicts it as judgment from God, as this day of the Lord. Or think of Sodom and Gomorrah, that God judges these cities in this tragic way. It's the day of the Lord. Or you could even think of Egypt in Exodus, right? The people of Egypt had enslaved the people of Israel. They abused them, treated them harshly, terribly. It even reached the point where the king of Egypt had ordered the execution of Israel's children. It had gotten to that extent of evil and abuse and oppression. And so what does God do? God judges Egypt. Interestingly enough, one of his judgments is this plague of locusts, the same judgment that Israel faces. And so whenever you go through your Bible and you encounter this theme of the day of the Lord, whether it's called that or you just see it in action, there's this repeating motif throughout all of the scriptures that the God who created the heavens and the earth is concerned with his creation. He's concerned with human morality because he put human beings... He gave them dominion over the earth. He essentially put human beings in charge. And so he's deeply concerned with how they are treating one another and treating his creation. And when human beings turn away from him and they fall into evil, and instead of helping, they oppress, instead of restoring, they destroy, then it reaches a point where God says enough is enough. But the day of the Lord isn't just about judgment. The day of the Lord has two purposes. It brings both judgment and restoration. Every single moment, every single time where you see kind of one of these, these very big judgments appear in the Bible, it's never just to destroy, right? This is the God of life. This is the God of creation. His primary purpose is not destruction. God does not take delight in the destruction of what he has made. God's ultimate purpose is the restoration for what he has made. When you look at the story of Egypt and Exodus, God doesn't just judge the Egyptians to judge them. He judges them to restore and redeem those who are being oppressed. 
The judgment for Egypt meant the restoration for the people of Israel. And Joel firmly believes that as he's talking to a people who have experienced judgment. Right? If you go to the very center, like the very middle of Joel, you'll see the real, I don't know, the heart of the matter. You'll see the real heart of God and the real purpose behind his judgment. If you turn, if you have your Bibles open, you can uh, turn to Joel chapter 2. Hear this. Verses 11 through 13, it says, The Lord is at the head of the column. He leads them with a shout. This is his mighty army, and they follow his orders. The day of the Lord is an awesome, terrible thing. Who can possibly stand? Or some translations say, who can possibly survive? That is why the Lord says, turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in grief. But tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate. He is slow to get angry, and he is filled with unfailing love. This is the very center of Joel's message to his people. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. You will probably hear me say that phrase 30 more times this sermon. I did it last service, so I'm probably going to do it again. Because if you, if you walk away from today remembering anything, you have to remember the call to return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. Joel believes that the judgment from God for Israel's sin is not just born out of wrath, it's not just born out of anger, but that judgment is born out of his mercy and his compassion and his unfailing love. And there is a real tension with that. Like, if you're confused by how that works, that's fine. I'm confused by how that works. Because for us, we usually view anger, judgment, discipline is over here, and love and mercy, compassion over here. But for Joel, those aren't two separate categories. They are one and the same. That this judgment is not just judgment, but it's also restoration. This judgment isn't discipline, but it's also grace and mercy. And Joel is reminding his people who have faced this judgment the real true character of God. He says, return, return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. See, the people of Israel should know this for a whole lot of different reasons, but one of the main reasons they should know it is because they know that God brings judgment, not just on who does evil, but God brings judgment to rescue the oppressed. They themselves were the very ones who were rescued from Egypt. Right? If you go back to Exodus, you read the account of Israel being brought out of Egypt, right? And when they finally escape and they're finally free, what's the first thing they do? They sing a song as if Exodus is like a musical, right? They all break into song and they sing this mighty song and it's a very different song than what we're used to. Because often, 
Our songs of praise are focused on God's love and his kindness and how he's a really chill dude, right? But a lot of the Hebrew songs are not focused on that. They're like, God's destroyed our enemies. He's crushed their heads with waves. Like, it's, it's about this brutal judgment. And they didn't, like, it's not like they were rejoicing in destruction. What they realized was that God's judgment meant their freedom. God's judgment meant their redemption and their restoration. In that moment, they saw God not as a mean, angry, judgmental God, but as a God who justly dealt with evil, who rescued the oppressed. Like, think about it. If you were the mother or the father of a baby who had been executed by the Egyptian government, you're probably not thinking like, man, Egypt got it really, really rough. God was a harsh God there. You're probably rejoicing that the enemies who killed your child are done and you are now free and that is never going to happen to your family again. Israel saw the defeat of their enemies with this day of the Lord as their victory. Not just as their victory, but it was a moment in which they knew they were God's people because God came to their rescue God did something they could never do themselves, and he defeated the evil that oppressed them. The problem that lies, though, with the Hebrew people when Joel is speaking to them is that they're actually the oppressors now. That somehow Israel has fallen into this trap where they became the very evil they had escaped from. And so now God is bringing judgment on them for becoming the very thing that he had destroyed long ago. But Israel isn't Egypt. Israel isn't Edom. Israel isn't Moab. Israel isn't any of the other people that we see God judge through the Old Testament. Because the Hebrew people are God's people. The people that he has saved, the people that he has bought, the people that he has claimed, the people that he has marked, the people that he fashioned from a barren woman in the first place. And so Israel sits in this very interesting spot where even though they are the oppressors who are being judged, they're also the beloved who will receive mercy because they belong to God. They are his people. And so there is this great tension, this great difficulty. It's like, yeah, there is people, but they're also being judged. And they're being judged, but they're also his people. There's a tension. There's a paradox there. There's a tension that we are going to wrestle with the whole time we're sitting in the minor prophets. That tension's in every prophet. That tension's in Hosea, who we talked about last week. It's like, these are my people, but you've abandoned me. But I won't leave you in your abandonment. I will come get you back. You've committed evil, terrible, terrible deeds, but I will still buy you back. And so Joel is reminding his people of the same thing that he's seen in all of the other prophets. Despite you becoming the oppressors, despite you being evil, you are still God's people. So return, return, return to the Lord your God who is merciful, compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. 
See, it's that tension there that, that I think is at the heart of the prophets. The prophets serve a very fascinating purpose in Scripture, and it's something that, that frankly, many Christians, many churches just, I think, kind of blatantly ignore. Or if they ever interact with the prophets, it's only to find the, the few little verses that talk about Jesus coming later. But one of the main purposes of the prophets is to really create tension. Because one of the main things the prophets did was criticize Israel for its sin. They, they established kind of these, these tension, I don't know, these, these situations filled with tension, these paradoxes. And then we read it and we get uncomfortable. And so we don't like that uncomfortability. We don't like that tension. We don't like how this comes together in such a way. So we often dismiss it. But the truth is that that uncomfortable feeling as we, we wrestle with God's justice and his judgment and his mercy and his grace, that's exactly where the prophets want to bring us to. Like, you're probably engaging with the prophets well if you are uncomfortable engaging with the prophets and still continue to engage. If you're just like, this is great, maybe you're not engaging with it well. I don't know. Maybe you're missing the point. The, the point is that there's tension here. God's people are evil. And they're God's people. And God made a promise to them that they would be as numerous as the stars, that they would be a blessing to the whole earth. So God is going to stand by their side, even though he's evil. But God is also going to judge them because they're evil. There's a tension here. It's confusing and it's difficult to wrestle with because the truth is is that you and I are in the same boat because we are the people of God and there are times when we are evil when our hearts are not in the right place and it's easy for everything to look great on the outside right just as these people are doing on the outside they look repentant they look like they're a holy people right in ancient cultures right when great tragedy struck Right? Your, your lamenting process was usually a very public thing. That's not the case for us, where usually when we are sad, we turtle in. Right? We don't want people to see us sad. We don't want people to see us cry. Right? But for the ancient people, they took their lamenting very seriously. If tragedy struck you and your family, you know what you did? You would like go out into the center of the city. You would tear your clothes off. You'd pour ashes on your head, and then you would wail and moan for the whole city to hear you. That the whole city, all of your neighbors would have to put up with your wailing and your moaning, right? They knew that you were having a bad day. And the Israelites are doing that. The Israelites don't respond to this tragedy where they have no more food, and they're like, that really stinks. Or I'm just going to, like, wrestle with all those feelings and bottle them inside. No. No, all of the Hebrew people are going out and wailing and mourning. A lot of them are begging for forgiveness, begging for forgiveness from God. And Joel says, I don't want you to tear your clothes. Not that that was a bad thing. He says, I want you to tear your hearts. That your repentance has to be real and true and genuine and inward. That you have to give me your heart. You have to return to me. Don't just put on a show. Don't just do it outwardly. That's so easy for us today. It's easier for us today to do that now because of how disconnected we are as a people. We truly don't know one another. 
And it is so easy for us to appear as if we're fine, we're doing great, or it's easy for us to appear as a good and moral and holy people who are following Jesus, when inwardly we aren't following him at all, and we don't know him at all. We're in the same boat as these Israelites. And so there's tension for us. There's a paradox for us. And every single time something like this would happen, whenever God shows up in a powerful way, the prophets ask, like, who can stand? Some of your translations will, will, will translate it to be like, who survived? I don't know. I like stand better. I don't know. Um, but that phrase isn't just found in the prophets. When writing Revelation, John would use that exact same phrase. You can jump to Revelation chapter 6 and 7 when he speaks of this day of the Lord. And it's not a day of the Lord for a couple cities like Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not the day of the Lord for a nation like Israel. This day of the Lord is for the entire universe. And everyone on the earth is running and fleeing. John describes them as hiding in caves. They're fleeing God because they say, no one, no one can stand before God. No one can survive. There's that question that's, that gets raised, who can stand? But then if you look at Revelation chapter 7, it's great. It's like the very next scene. John depicts hundreds of thousands of people standing before God. And who are they? They're his people. The people that he has marked, the people that he has claimed, the people that he has saved, the people that he has poured his mercy out, the people who have been marked by the righteousness of Christ. See, here's the thing. It's very easy for us when we think of God and have a picture of God to have a very, I don't know, like simple picture of God. We usually take one human emotion, whatever we're feeling on that day, and then slap it on God and say, God is this, right? If we're feeling God's love, God is loving, right? When we're looking at the judgment, God is full of wrath. When we feel cold and distant, God is distant. It's very easy for us to have the simplistic view of God, but the truth is that God is far more complex and perplexing than we can possibly comprehend. He is so far beyond us. And when we look at something like his judgment, you can't separate that from his salvation. They coexist. They're one and the same. I love, I just finished reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to my girls. And um, if you're familiar with that, then this, this will probably really hit. If not, I don't know, just follow me. But uh, one of my favorite, favorite parts of, of anything that C.S. Lewis has ever written is when the children are sitting at the beaver's house and they hear about Aslan, who Aslan in, in these stories is supposed to represent Jesus. And they're hearing about this great king who is coming. And then they find out that Aslan is a lion. And Susan becomes very worried and she says, she tells Mr. Beaver, I thought Aslan was a man, or at least I assumed so. And she asks Mr. Beaver, she says, well, is he a safe lion? And Mr. Beaver, like, laughs. And he says, no, no, he's not a safe lion. He's a lion. Lions aren't safe. Has anyone ever here looked at a lion and thought, I want to cuddle with that lion. I feel perfectly safe, caressing my body right by its massive claws and giant teeth right? No! No, he's a lion! Of course he's not safe, Mr. Beaver says, but he's good. 
And that's Mr. Beaver's answer to Susan. No, he's not safe, but he's good. And so often, you and I fall into this trap when we think of, the, of God and we want to simplify God and say, yes, God is just safe. No, he's not safe. This is the God who brought a flood to the earth. This is the God who brought a meteor to Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe a meteor, I don't know, it's debatable. This is a God who brought 12 plagues to Egypt. This is a God who brought a swarm of locusts to his own people. This isn't a safe God. No one can stand before a holy, perfect creator of the universe who threw the stars into space. No one can stand before him. No one can come to him. But he came to us. In the person of Jesus, God made himself a man and came to us and dwelt among us. John, in writing his gospel, uses the word tabernacled. He tabernacled with us. That God took his very presence and made it to dwell, to live with us. And in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we are marked for righteousness. We are made holy. We are made whole. Right? The Hebrew people use this word shalom to mean peace, to mean wholeness and completeness. Then in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, you are made whole. You are in perfect peace, perfect harmony with God. And those are the people we see standing before him when John talks about the day of the Lord in Revelation. The author of Hebrews talks about this concept when he says, because of Christ, we can boldly approach the throne room. We can boldly approach the throne of God because of what our Savior has done for us. And this is the very message that Joel is trying to communicate to the people of his day. He says, you have become the oppressor. You have become the very evil that God saved you from. But return. Return to the God who is merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, and filled with unfailing love. Return to your first love. And they should have known that this is the character of God. Because in Exodus, when God rescues his people and he brings them to the mountain, he forms them as his people and he tells them his name. He says, I'm Yahweh. Yahweh. This is in Exodus 34. I'm Yahweh, your God. Full of mercy, full of compassion, slow to anger, and filled with unfailing love. Joel's not just taking that from nowhere. He's quoting something that the Hebrew people knew. Not just knew, but that, that phrase that I've said like five times now, that's, that was one of the most common like memory verses that the Hebrew people would say over and over and over again. Yahweh, Yahweh. The Lord is merciful. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. And he is filled with unfailing love. God was not going to fully destroy his people even though they had become the very evil that he had rescued them from. 
but it's that he calls them to return, that the day of the Lord is not a final judgment. The day of the Lord is a call to wake up. It's a call to return to first love. It's a call to remember that you have been marked for righteousness by the blood of Christ. That you don't need to be terrified of this God or distance yourself from this God even when you have become the very evil that God has rescued you from. But instead, you can boldly approach the throne room because you have a high priest who has taken your sin, who has marked you for righteousness, and you can now stand before this amazing, perplexing, complex, almost at times terrifying God. You can stand before him because you've been made whole. And the picture we find at the very end is thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands. It reaches a point where John says, a multitude that no person could ever count is standing around the throne of God, singing praise, singing holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. Let that be us, not just today, but for all eternity. Let us rip open our hearts, repent of our sin, and return to the God who is full of mercy, full of compassion, slow to anger, and filled with unfailing love. If you would, would you please pray with me? Dear God, we love you, and we thank you that you are a good God. In the midst of every circumstance, in the midst of every situation, whether we're doing great or whether we're in a deep valley, Lord, help us to know that you are here, that you are with us, even when we have rejected you and and have wandered away from you. Lord, help us to turn, to remember who you are, and to return to your heart. It's in your son's name we pray all these things. Amen.